Good morning. How's it going? Father, I want to pray for us here this morning. Uh, Lord, you know uh, how overwhelmed I feel at this text, uh, how inadequate I feel to uh, proclaim it. And so I know that it's just got to be your Holy Spirit that comes this morning and does the work. And so I pray that your Spirit would come and bless this time, that you would open our eyes and show us who you really are. Amen. So, two days away, and we know, we finally know, and it's over no matter what. You're, you get your Facebook feed back from all the politics and the opinions, you get the news, some of the news back, finally. I mean, how many of you are just ready for it to be done? Like, one way or the other, we're just, we're just ready for it to be done. Um, I know for a lot of Americans, man, this this presidential race is just kind of been a time of a little bit of uncertainty and angst for the future, unsure of exactly what to do. And I I just want to encourage you, this is not the main point of the sermon, but our text really speaks to it. And Ellie read it this morning, but if you've got your Bible or your Bible app on your phone or something, go ahead and open it up to Isaiah chapter 6. And the first sentence or the first phrase of the first sentence actually speaks to like our situation. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So that first phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died, is most commentators believe is more than just kind of a um, time indicator. It's also something to cue us off to the context in which Isaiah found himself when he had this vision. And it was a time sort of like today, a time of political transition and a bit of uncertainty and angst for the future. And for Isaiah, at least, and for some of you, maybe some others, it might feel like a time of hopelessness. Um, Because what happened was uh, Uzziah was not a president. He was a king. And he didn't reign just four or eight years. He reigned for 52. And so it's likely that this was the only king Isaiah had sat under. Uh, Or if not, this guy had been there the majority of Isaiah's life. And so this king, this ruler that had been there all of Isaiah's life, and who was, by and large, in a general term, a decent king, um, comparing him to the kings that came before and after him, he he was a decent guy. And people who wanted to worship the Lord did well under him for the most part. Contrast that with the king that's coming up, if you've got your Bibles open, Isaiah 7 verse 1 says that it was talking about when Ahaz came to the throne. So don't get lost in the weird Old Testament names of Uzziah and Ahaz, uh, which you need to understand, Uzziah, decently good king, dies, and literally it just straight up moves to Ahaz, really bad, really evil king, comes to power. Uh, Ahaz, like, evil in the sense like he burned his own kids at altars to false gods and killed lots of innocent people. He's a really, really evil king. Now what's interesting is there's actually a king in between that. Ahaz is Uzziah's grandson, so there was someone in between, and you can, if you want, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, that's in Second Kings chapter like 16-ish. But literally, Isaiah moves straight from one to the other. The death of one good and the rise of one very bad. And so Uzziah, or, uh, Isaiah finds himself in this like, oh man, what's going to happen? What's it going to be like um, in the future? How, how am I, what's life going to be now? And that's when God reminds him of who he is. 
That's when God shows himself on the throne. And so uh, when Wednesday morning comes, whether it went your way or not, uh, God himself is still sitting on his throne. He alone is sovereign. One commentator put it this way, it didn't matter to Isaiah what, any, what was happening with any earthly monarchy because it was the heavenly monarch who counted. Uh, and so I just want to encourage you, if you're feeling kind of uh, right now, don't long for days gone by when so-and-so was president or our culture was this way or that way. Long for days ahead when the king of kings is fully ruling in heaven and on earth. Don't look to the past, look forward, okay? So that's, just, that's like I said, that's not the main point, that's the introduction. Um, <laughs> but, but it's poignant for us today. Uh, it's at that point where Isaiah is feeling like you do, but probably to another degree that God reminds Isaiah of who he is. And let's look at who he reveals himself to be. So the first point, the first thing that God sees and the first point on your little note sheet if you're taking notes is that God is uniquely holy. God is uniquely holy. In verse two, it says, above him were seraphs, each with six wings, and with two wings they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. They were calling to another, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. So let's talk about these seraphim for a minute. Um, to be completely honest, most people don't know exactly what they were. We don't know their form. We don't know if they have kind of like human-ish looking bodies like it seems like most angels in the Bible when they appear to someone, you kind of... The, the sense that you get is they looked human-ish. Uh, we don't know that for sure about these ones. Well, human-ish with wings, um, if nothing else. I mean, so maybe they were that. The word seraph in Hebrew, okay, is actually, this is cool, seraph, okay? So what it is, it's what's called a transliteration. And a transliteration happens when someone is translating from Hebrew and goes, I have no idea what that word means in English, so I'll just write it the way it sounds. Um, and so... That's, what we, that's where the word seraphim comes from. The, Lord, the word literally means burning ones. And so in other places in the Bible, that word shows up and it's used to describe poisonous snakes because the poison would like burn if they were bit. So some people think maybe it has some kind of like reptilian looking creature. Maybe they were literally a flame burning ones. Uh, one person said they might be uh, a personification of thunder and lightning. Lightning, for obvious reasons, they're the burning ones. But thunder, when they speak, it says that the temple shakes. There's this rumbling that's happening. At Mount Sinai, when God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, there's thunder and lightning. In the book of Revelation, when God is kind of flexing this glory muscle, uh, there's, again, thunder and lightning. Uh, When he's leading people through the wilderness, in the book of Exodus, there's a pillar of cloud, which is thundery, and a pillar of fire, which could be lightning-ish, right? So some people say it's, it's kind of just a continuation of that same idea and theme that when God is seen for who he really is, when he manifests himself in one way or other, it's pretty common for there to be this like bright, big, thundery loudness around him. And so maybe the seraphim are that. So the point is we don't know exactly what their form was, but we do know that there's some form of angelic heavenly being, so they don't like hang out on earth. They live in heaven and they are powerful. Okay, when they speak, 
the temple shakes and is filled with smoke. Isaiah hears them talking and he's overcome. The, contrast this with a lot of times the way you see an angel portrayed on a Hallmark card is like a little chubby baby with wings and a bow and arrow or sometimes like a really glowy, soft-looking person. It looks like they belong in like a shampoo commercial, okay? <laughs> These angels weren't that. They were big. They were strong. They were probably intimidating for Isaiah to look at. And they were proclaiming to one another, holy, holy, holy. And as they're doing this, God had created them with six wings, only two of which they actually used to fly four of which are used to cover their eyes, they can't look on God, and two of which are covering their feet. In Exodus 3, God tells Moses, take your sandals off because where you're standing is holy ground. And so even these seraphim are covering their feet so as to not desecrate the ground or the air around God, not to disrespect him in any way. And God created these creatures to continually be doing this, continually be proclaiming the holiness of God to be seeing him for who he is and proclaiming it to others, which by the way is an indicator of what you might be created for as well. But here's what they're doing. For thousands of years, this is their job. When you were sleeping last night in total la-la land or struggling to sleep, if you have insomnia or something, that's where they are, standing before the throne, holy, or flying before the throne, holy, holy, holy. When Christ was walking to Calvary, holy, holy, holy. Tomorrow when you go to work, right now as I'm preaching, if the Lord tarries, in fact, even after that, they'll still be there. Holy, holy, holy. This is all they exist for. Now, why are they saying holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty? Three times. Why don't they just say holy or holy, holy? In Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you say it twice, you repeat it. So instead of saying, like, in the unlikely event it ever got over 80 degrees here, we might say, it's really hot. In Hebrew, you would say, it's hot, hot, okay? Uh, That's why you've got the book, if you know your Bibles, you've got the book Song of Songs. It's the songiest of all songs, is what that title's saying. There's no song that's songier than this one, okay? Or if you pride yourself in your lawn and your grass is really green and lush, you would say you have grassy grass, okay? And so that's why you have king of kings, lord of lords, holy of holies. It's emphasizing that it's really something. And we even do this in English today, like, man, I am really, really, really hungry, right? I mean, you're emphasizing you're, you're really hungry, right? And you, so the only way you can think to do is to repeat it. It's as if the grammar itself is being strained to contain and communicate the holiness of God. The triple repetition in Hebrew is very rare. It happens only probably two or three times. I know it's less than five in scripture. I know for sure two of those times it's holy, holy, holy. Here and in Revelation 4, that thrice repetition is pretty rare. And so when it does occur, we're supposed to pay attention and that the two times uh, of the very few that it does occur is on this one aspect of God's character. It, It should really cause us to kind of think about it for a minute. So let's think about this concept of his holiness. Most of us, when we think of holy, we think of uh, purity, like sinlessness or like lack of evil. Lack of sounds weird because it sounds like it should be there, but of no evil, 
right? That's what we think of when we think of holy. And it does mean that, but at its core, holy means different in a better way. It means set apart from what's normal, and it's being set apart because it's better. Um, and not just better in terms of purity. God is pure. That, that part of holiness is true of him. Val says there's no deceit in him. There's no darkness. He is full of integrity. There's no, no hint of evil about him. He is completely pure. Uh, when people see images of God, manifestations of his glory, usually like Moses leaves with a glowing face, kind of representing that, that, whole, that goodness of him. When people see Jesus, like in Daniel and Revelation, and I think there's a few others, they see him and it's like he's glowing. And he's got these white robes and it'll say something like, it's whiter than anyone in the whole world could bleach it. It's really all of that symbolizing really pure, really clean, no sin at all. But holiness doesn't mean just sinlessness because the seraphim have that same quality and the angels in heaven are also sinless. They haven't done anything evil. They haven't thought anything evil. They haven't been selfish. They have been holy in the sense that they've been clean. And yet God is still set apart from them in a different way. Holiness, when it comes to the character of God, means that he is categorically unique. That there is none like him anywhere. There is nobody who compares. That he alone, what sets him apart from the angels, is not just that he's sinless, but that he is the creator and sustainer of all life. No other being has ever created life in the way that God has created life. No other being has created the universe and the world the way that God has created. He alone, there is no being in heaven, in hell, on earth that is like God. And this was the great lie that Satan told Adam and Eve. You can be like God. No, you can't. No, you can't. None, no one is like him. Uh, I've got a few passages here. Well, actually, hang on. First, First Samuel 2, let me read this one to you. Um, so there's this lady named Hannah, and she prays, and God answers her prayer. And, then, and in her prayer of thanksgiving and response, she says this, First Samuel 2, 2, There is no one holy like Yahweh. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Even his name. When you see the word Lord in all capitals in your Bible, what that means is in the Hebrew manuscript, it was actually written um, like Yahweh without the vowels. And people got concerned that you might read or say his name in vain and take one of the, or break one of the Ten Commandments. And so people started, you had this um, practice that was started to start writing um, Adonai. Or you would start translating it or just putting a different word there so you didn't actually say Yahweh because you were afraid, they were afraid of taking it in vain. So when you see it in all caps, that's what it means, but someone's concerned that we might use it the wrong way. Which, by the way, if we're reading scripture, I don't think we can unless you're trying to twist it for your own uses. But if you're reading scripture, that's why I, when I read, you hear me say Yahweh, that's why. But his name, the point is his name is holy. Even to say it, carries a different connotation than, than another person's name. This, uh, I've, I've gathered a few verses that are rhetorical questions throughout scripture that kind of hit on this concept, and this is by no means exhaustive. This list is more like the little appetizer you get at Costco instead of like the whole box, okay? So uh, let's bring up the first one. It's Exodus fifteen eleven. 
says, Who among the gods is like you, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? If ever you're reading scripture and you come across a rhetorical question where it's clear that whoever's asking it knows the answer and they're really just asking the question as a way of making a statement, if you want, what you could do is you could answer that question and then reread it as a statement and it might help you understand the force of it. There is no God among the gods like you, O Yahweh. There is none like you, none as majestic in holiness, none as awesome in glory, none who can work wonders the way you do. The rhetorical question is answered, no one. Psalm seventy-seven, thirteen: your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? None. There is no God so great as our God. He's not one among many. He does not compete with Krishna or Allah or any others. He is unique. He is his own. Isaiah 40, 25 through 26. Now this actually starts out with God asking the rhetorical question. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? God. So his statement there, you cannot compare me to anybody. I am incomparable. There is none who is equal to me. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. There is no angel who can do that. There's no human that can do that. There's no being anywhere like God. Psalm 113, 4 and 6. Yahweh is exalted over all the nations. Okay, that's kind of referencing back, think back, that taps into that same thing that he's, his throne is higher than all other thrones. He's exalted over the nations. There's no one on earth, no president or world ruler that compares to him. He's exalted over all the nations. His glory above the heavens, again, above the angels. There's not one in heaven that compares with him. Not the strongest angel is weak to him. Who is like Yahweh our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? Repeatedly, Scripture brings this up over and over and over again. There is no one, no one, no one like God. He alone is holy, holy, holy. And we, we just don't get it. I don't get it. We treat him so casually sometimes. He is so unique. He is so different. He is so categorically other than anyone or anything you've ever known. He is powerful. He is the creator. He is sinless and perfect. He alone is holy. He alone is unique. The next phrase they give there is that the whole earth is full of his glory. This holiness, this bigness of God can be seen in creation. This is what Psalm 119 says. This is what Romans 1 says. His invisible qualities have been clearly known. So when they say the whole earth is full of his glory, uh, I, I just thought of a few examples here, and you can, I'm sure, think of your own. But the Mariana Trench, I mean, it's a deep chasm in the bottom of the ocean. It's the deepest part of the ocean that we're aware of today. And it is about, give or take, um, a few I think, I don't know, it's like 36,000, I know it's at least 36,000 feet deep. So to give you some perspective, that is deeper than Mount Everest is tall, okay? That is deeper than planes fly. So this is a really deep chasm. We've only been able to take a handful of submarines and expeditions to the bottom. It costs a ton of money, and if you were to just kind of like try to flip her down there and swim, you would be 
you would be crushed and killed because of the pressure. Um, and we have not at all exhausted our knowledge of this thing. It's, it's like over a thousand miles long. I think it's just huge. And if we were to give God human characteristics, he could just with his pinky draw it in the sand like a kid at the beach without straining himself at all. Mount Everest is the tallest mountain on earth, right? Many men and women have given a lot to get to the top. Some of them, it's cost them their lives. And God, more than just being able to pile it up like sand, he just, the scripture says he just spoke and it was there. He just, with his mouth, without even moving, he creates it. And that's just Everest on earth. That's not the tallest mountain in our solar system. Olympus Mons on Mars is, I can't remember the exact height, but it like dwarfs Everest. It's huge. God created these things. The Grand Canyon, when you stand at the edge of it, you feel small. And part of that, that's like on purpose, because you are. Um, It is miles wide at some points. It is so long so deep, and you've got this powerful river running through it. It supports all sorts of life, has all sorts of history, all of that. All of it is that we would look back to God and see he is unique. Those things didn't happen by accident. That somebody awesome made them. And awesome, not in the like cool sense, but awesome in the causing awe, causing me to go, whoa, sense. Someone awesome made those. And it's not just natural features. Think of animals, too. The blue whale is the largest mammal that we know of, 22 tons, or largest mammal today, 22 tons, 100 feet long. I mean, if you have ever seen a photo of like a human swimming next to a whale, it's like, that would totally freak me out. I would never do that. It's so scary, just the size of those things. And again, if we were to give God human characteristics, could with his finger and thumb just pick it up, again, without straining himself and take it wherever he wants to go. I've got a little betta fish in my office and he does what I want, okay? Like, I can make him do whatever I want. God is that same way with the blue whale. That's a weird analogy, I'm sorry. (laughs) The point, the point is, everything about him is powerful and unique. There's none that compare. And Job, he's again kind of like revealing the side of himself to Job. Deep voice, again, thunder and lightning. And he says, like, there's this huge creature. It's called the Leviathan. And he says that he can lead it wherever he wants. He can walk it like you walk your dog. He can do whatever he wants with it. So natural features, animals. And it's not just the big things. The intricate things, too. Have you ever thought about the human eye and how complex that thing is? To see reality and to reflect it back into your brain with the right amount of light, with the right amount of like depth perception so you can kind of see where things are. You can gauge texture just by looking at something. That doesn't happen by accident. We've got something like 63,000 miles of uh, blood vessels in our body. I was listening to a TED talk about a week and a half ago, and the guy was in charge of transportation for metropolitan areas, which sounds like a boring job. But for his inspiration, he looked to the human body and to blood vessels. And he's definitely not a believer, but he said in the talk, um, how is it that you can have 63,000 miles and not a single traffic jam? How is it like your blood can just pump the oxygen and the protein and, and everything that it needs to everywhere in your body where it needs to go. That does not happen by accident. The whole earth 
is full of his glory. So when they say holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty, that this, this bigness, this awesomeness of God, and that that can be seen in what he makes. The whole earth is full of his glory, that we would look around and we would say, God, you are awesome. You are holy. You are unique. There is none other than you. Theologically, this term is called transcendence. He transcends us. He's far away. He's different. And that might sound like it contradicts what Ian preached about last week. If you were here, he talked about, I am a friend of Jesus. And he talked about the closeness of God and the intimacy you can have with God. And it might sound, if, if you're kind of just putting them side by side at this point, you might think, we're talking about two different gods at this point. We're not. What Ian was preaching about is what's called imminence. These two sides of God's character, the closeness and the farawayness, the holiness and the love and intimacy. And the thing is, the key is, we do not understand one without the other. We do not understand his intimacy and his love unless we've kind of got a grasp on his holiness and his, and his difference than us. It, this is not to cheapen his love or mercy at all. It is to strengthen it that we would see God this way. And this is what Isaiah sees. Isaiah sees this holiness of God, but it doesn't move straight to intimacy. Isaiah has a pretty big problem. And that's the next point, is God's holiness highlights our sinfulness. God's holiness highlights our sinfulness. Verse five, so Isaiah has seen this, and without God, at at this point in the text, God has done nothing, okay? God has not said anything, God has not moved, he has just seen, that's all that's happened. And he says, woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh Almighty. This phrase, woe to me, I'm ruined. Um, One translation wrote, too bad for me, which is a total understatement. This is intense distress and sorrow. Other translations would say things like, I'm destroyed, I'm reduced to nothing. I, I, I should be killed. I mean, he's not happy. He's terrified. Contrast that. So often we pray that God would show us for who he is. That would really scare us because what happens is a mirror has been put in front of Isaiah, a spiritual mirror to where he has seen the depth of his soul. And that's why he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King Yahweh Almighty. When he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, he's not just talking about his speech we talked about this a few weeks ago. Scott preached on the idea that our lips and the use of our mouth is a representation of our heart. And it's the same idea here when he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. At the core of who I am, I'm unclean, is what he says. That I see the holiness of God and I immediately am aware that I fall very short of that. I fall so short of that. When you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you feel small. When you are standing before God, you feel dirty. I worked at a movie theater when I was in high school and uh, we played a dirty trick on the public and they still do this, so um, (laughs) as far as I know. Between showings, when we would go into clean theaters, I remember when I was being trained, what they said was, if it's a big mess, go ahead and sweep it up and clean it up. But if it's not that big of a mess, just sweep it underneath the chairs. And so if you go to the showing, to the movies today, like if you go tonight, there's going to be dirty popcorn and garbage and whatever grossness that they didn't feel like cleaning up sitting underneath of you. 
At the end of the night, they'll turn the lights on and a janitorial service comes and does a deep clean. But throughout the day, it just gets dirtier and dirtier. And this was the phrase that my manager said when I was being trained. He's talking about doing this and he says, we're going for the appearance of clean as opposed to actually clean. And <laughs> that's gonna make you all feel like, oh my gosh, I don't ever wanna go see a movie again. Um, but I thought I'm gonna tuck that away because that is a sermon illustration waiting to happen. The, the thing that makes that method work is the darkness. Once the lights are turned on, any appearance of clean is completely done away with. You can see it all, and it's nasty. The thing that makes it work is the darkness, and when you stand before God, the lights are turned on, and any appearance of clean that you've been giving to others, to yourself, or trying to fool God with is completely done away with. Any pretense of piety, any mask of righteousness is ripped away. And you stand there unclean and scared and terrified. That's what he is. I'm afraid. I've seen God. You contrast this with the seraphim. They were covering their eyes. They're sinless. Sinless heavenly beings not looking on him. A sinful man looks at God and he goes, I'm ruined. But God does something awesome. Isaiah is in the spot where he realizes he is sinful at his core and God is holy at his. And those two things cannot come together. You know, sometimes that's in sermon illustrations, I've heard it described as like oil and water, they just won't mix. And that's sort of true, but it falls short because those two things could be in the same cup. It's more like magnets that have the same polarity, and when you bring them close together, they pull apart or they repel. When they get close, they push each other away. And our sin at our core, we push him away. That's why the Bible says that the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. That they'll, they'll push it away. And in the same sense, God himself is holy. He does not tolerate sin. And he'll, deal, and he'll judge it. He won't tolerate it. It's not going to be in the same room. Isaiah realizes this, and he knows that if he's standing in that room, one of two things has to change. God has to become less holy and be okay with sin, or Isaiah's sin has to be done away with. And that's what happens. God graciously atones for our sin. God graciously atones for our sin. Verses six and seven. One of the seraphs, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God graciously atones for our sin. So I, I'm trying more and more to use less churchy Christianese words when I preach and share the gospel with people. I just don't want there to be a barrier. So that word atone, I really thought about whether or not I should use it. Um, but the word atone means that there's two things that have been separated and there's something that's causing that. Atone means you've dealt with that thing in the middle and you've brought those two together. It, it's reconciliation. God graciously atones for us and he deals with it. I want to contrast this with two pretty common misconceptions of God, both of which contain an element of truth, but neither of which are true. One is that God maximizes sin and God has no patience for it, and that he will kill you on the spot. In that, sen- in that view, this misconception of God, Isaiah should have been killed the second, th- on verse one. He should not have been there. 
This misconception of God that he's vengeful, he's angry, he's mean, he's waiting to do you harm. That's one misconception. And that's what should have happened to Isaiah, some would think. On the other hand, and I think what we as a church and in our, nation, or our region um, we're far more in danger of is, is swinging the pendulum to the other side, not where God would maximize sin, but where he would minimize it. Where he would say, I don't care about it. It's not that big of a deal, Isaiah. Nobody's perfect. It's okay. I love you anyway. Let's, it's water under the bridge. Let's just move on. Let's just forget about it. I'll pretend it didn't happen. God doesn't pretend it doesn't happen. He doesn't minimize it. And he doesn't maximize it. What he does is actually far better than both of those. See, each one of those contain an element of truth that God is just and holy. And sin can't be in his presence. And God is merciful and patient and does love us and want to save people from perishing. And so what he does is actually neither one of the, the mistaken views, but what he does is he actually deals with our sin. doesn't maximize it or minimize it. He deals with it. That coal that comes and touches his lips, again, lips being kind of symbolic of his core being, he changes Isaiah. God is holy at his core. Isaiah is is sinful at his. One of those cores has to change, and God does that for Isaiah. And so now at this point in the text, everyone in the room is standing holy and blameless. Everyone in the room, Isaiah, the seraphim, and God, no sin in that room at all. Now the coal is also symbolic. We learn later in Isaiah that there's going to be a suffering servant who takes on the wrath of God, who takes on the justice of God, who endures it so that others could be made right, so that core could change. We know that that is Christ. The Bible repeatedly uses that prophecy and that image to talk about Jesus. We know that it, the coal represents the atoning work of Jesus' death on the cross, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, and in overcoming death, he has the power to change you. That coal touching his lips, again representing change at the core. Ezekiel 37, uh, 37 to 34, God says, I'm going to give him a new heart. I'm going to pull out their old heart and give them a new one. It's not just that I'm going to help you behave better or be a little bit nicer. I'm going to change you at the core of who you are. The New Testament uses terms like new birth. You've been born again. You are a new creation. You're completely different from your core. It's not just behavior modification. It is gospel transformation. God graciously atones for our sin. Now what Isaiah actually saw is Jesus Christ himself on the throne. John twelve forty one. It says um, that what Isaiah saw was the glory of Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. Those three points right there are the good news of the gospel. God is uniquely holy. There is none like him. We don't compare. We can't measure up because we His holiness highlights our sinfulness. We are sinful at the core. So something has to change and God has made provision in Jesus Christ for us. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what Isaiah experiences. This is exactly what the Bible is talking about. I'm gonna read you a passage from Colossians that is encapsulating this this whole concept 
I want you to listen to the words, and if you want to follow along, it's in, I didn't put it on the screen, I'm sorry, but it's Colossians 1, 21 through 23. I want you to listen to this as I read. Once you were alienated from God, you were separated from him. You were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Because of our sinfulness at the core, we were separated. But now, this is verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. He's reconciled, he's brought together, he's brought you together by, by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. When Isaiah sees God, God is holy in Isaiah's sight. And now, when God sees Isaiah, Isaiah is holy in God's sight. And you've got that same power available to you, that same opportunity for yourself through Christ. If you can, and here it says, verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Ephesians 1, 4, for he chose us in him, in Jesus Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So this is a two-part sermon. It's probably going to go about an hour and a half. This is part one, and we're going to come to the conclusion. In verse 8, God says, who's going to go for us? Who's, who am I going to send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. We preach on that November 20th, but where I want to end this morning is hammering this nail of the gospel that God has invited each of you has invited me, has brought Isaiah into the holiness, into the relationship with him, that although he is transcendent, he has offered imminence. Although he is holy, he has offered intimacy. He is just and can't tolerate sin, and yet he'll bring you in, and he'll atone for it, and he'll reconcile you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus is what makes a person holy and blameless. So what does Isaiah do? He says, here am I, send me. So this will be uh, what we'll talk about on the 20th. But the response to the gospel is a full laying out of my life whatever God wants me to do. At this, Isaiah can't just go home and watch the football game afterwards. He is changed at his core and he knows that he has to do something different, that I'll do whatever you ask. He says yes before the task is given. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, So where do we want to end today? If you've put faith in Jesus Christ, my encouragement to you would be to think through those points. All of us have some work to do. Have we been thinking about God a little too casually? Have we been diminishing his holiness? Have, Have we cheapened his grace by failing to recognize his holiness? How we think about God matters. B, we need to be honest about our sin. We can't just attempt to have this appearance of clean. We've got to actually be real with God, be real with ourselves, and we need to reach out and and hold on to Christ. If you've not done that today, I encourage you, do it. He is merciful, he is patient, and one day, I love you enough to tell you this, you're going to stand before him and all appearance of clean will be done away with. And if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, the only thing you're going to have to say is, woe is me. That doesn't have to happen. 
you can be holy, your sin can be atoned for, your guilt can be taken away. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. God, you are holy, holy, holy. God, I ask that you'd forgive me for treating you casually, for taking you lightly, for cheapening your grace. Help me to see you as you are. I pray for all of us this morning that you would help us to see you as you are. God, we join with the seraphim in proclaiming your holiness and goodness. I ask that there's anyone here who doesn't know you, God. I pray that the coal would touch their lips. I pray that you'd bring them into relationship with yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.